Welcome to the Beyond High Performance Podcast, featuring content and conversations from me, Jason Jaggard, along with our elite coaches at Novus Global, their high-performing clients, and the faculty at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. On this podcast, you'll hear some of the world's best executive coaches and high-performing leaders, artists, and athletes discuss how they continue to go beyond high performance in their lives and businesses. So we decided to start a business at the worst time economically, but at the best time technologically. It was our dismissiveness of what the economy was telling us and our attraction to what technology and art was telling us to do. Today's episode is from the Meta Performance Show, where I sit down with high performers who continually aspire to go beyond high performance. On this episode, I get to talk with tech entrepreneur, Michael Cioni. Michael co-founded Lightiron, a digital post-production company with his brother Pete in 2009. Over the next six years, they did work on Oscar-winning films like Gone Girl and John Wick, Emmy-winning shows like Transparent, as well as companies like Mercedes. In 2019, Light Iron was acquired by Panavision. You'll see a pattern here in a second. Michael then transitioned to being Global Senior Vice President of Innovation at Frame.io, a company creating the future of digital collaboration. We use them for this podcast. After only six years, Frame.io was acquired by Adobe, little mom and pa shop there, in 2021 for over $1.2 billion. In this episode, we talk about the art of public speaking, how to design cultures and teams obsessed with excellence, how to maximize failure, and more. Enjoy the show. Michael Cioni, thank you so much for being on our show today. Welcome. Thank you. You and I have known each other for a long time, and I've been wanting you to be on the podcast for a long time. Talking to you is like a living, breathing TED Talk. Uh, you know, and, and just as a precursor to our friendship, we used to get together like what? Maybe a couple times a year or so. We would get uh, breakfast at that place on Sunset Boulevard and, and talk about... Mostly we would talk about dating woes, but also we would wax poetic about technology and leadership and all those types of things. And I just always walked away from those conversations challenged uh, intellectually about the way that you see the world, the way that you see leadership, the way you see technology and the way those two things intersect. So I'm really excited for us to talk today. But I want our audience to get to know you a little bit. But where I want to start the conversation, if you're up for it, is where you and your brother had the idea for, for Light Iron. So could you tell us the origin story of Light Iron? Yeah. And I want to say it's always mutual when it comes to conversations with you. It's always enlightening. It's always challenging. It's always strengthening. And so I appreciate all those opportunities that we uh, have spent a lot of time just just talking, no agenda talking. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's really great. And you can always tell we're doing something because people around us notice us when we're just <laughs> talking. Well, Whatever they're doing next to the table or the person bringing us our coffee or whatever it is, you can tell they're like, they're like interested. What do you two do? And we're yes. like, I don't know, but we're doing it. There's always an audience. And I feel like part of that is because there's an animation, you know, there's a, you and I are both very passionate and, uh, and, and by the way, I think you're, you're, you have a voice for radio in a lot of ways. It's a very unique voice. And, and I think people like hear the ratatat of our dialogue and I'd like to, I'd like to think of it as Sorkin-esque, <laughs> if I could yeah, funny. be as arrogant as possible. I like the idea that, uh, you know, music is rhythmic. And I think that communication should have a musical rhythm to it. And I love to talk in that. And, you, you know, you can use cues like I just did, a pause. You could use cues, <laughs> comma, draw that out, right? You could yeah. use cues. And then you can start a new thought by <laughs> changing the tone. This is a new idea. This is that, you know, now I'm going to go through a list. These are the types of ways that I try to help communication, especially when the fact that Americans can be really bad about forgetting. There's a whole planet out there that is English as a second language. Hmm. There's transcriptions hmm. and there's also jargon. And when I'm doing international presentations or some types of communications, I try to try to tailor the language and the syntax and the rhythm and the cadences to try to factor in how can I make this communicable to other people, especially if they're translating in real time. These are all important attributes, I think, of communication and language that leaders need to really focus on. And a lot of times you have to, it sounds horrible, but you got to record yourself and you got to watch mm. it back and you got to mm. practice. People say, how do you get so good at speaking? How'd you get so good at running blind hundred meter dashes. You did a lot of them by yourself, yeah. right? Yep. And it's like a lot of people sometimes, you know, we watch all this television and we see in 12 weeks, you can go from a nobody working at a car wash to a major star with a record deal. That's not real. That's not <laughs> real. And it's a really bad, you know, Mike Rowe actually has a podcast and, and there's, there, he talks about this once in a while about like, this is, this is not good mentorship, right? Is to demonstrate something that's 
you know, it's like, it's like playing the lottery as a business plan, right? It's yeah. like not a good idea. Well, and that, and, and in a sense, what I hear you saying is you don't ever want to rob people of the reps. Like you can't cheat the system. There's, I mean, maybe you can, but you're always going to pay for it later. You don't want to, you don't want to have success, get ahead of your skis. You want to be able to get the reps in to earn it. I want to focus on that just for a second, Michael, because you are you're, like your timber, your tone, the pitch when you speak, is that intentional? Have you always talked with a variance of pitch like that? Or did you learn that? No. No, you practice and you practice, and you get feedback. That's what I meant by the 100 meter dash is, you know, getting to be that good is a lonely process. We just had an Olympic summer and I love the Olympics. And what makes me so emotionally tied to the Olympics is that we love to celebrate these moments of medals and success. But when those people are breaking down and crying when they're winning and they've, they've gotten the recognition, what I think is driving them to that emotional state is all the stuff that we couldn't see leading up to the actual performance we did see. That's what's on their face. That's the tears, the salt going down their cheeks is because of the stuff that was invisible. It was lonely. It was the regret. It's the birthdays and you know family members they missed and didn't see and didn't participate in all these Christmases and so on. That's what I think is on the face of someone crying with a gold medal. Yeah. Not... Not the gold medal. That's huh. not what's driving them to that place. We we saw that. It's what we didn't see. The personal, private, lonely stuff. That's what leaders know about. Is it the Simon Sinek book, Leaders Eat Last, right? Yep. Yep. It's the lonely parts that actually create real greatness. And people don't see that. And, you know, we kind of wish we were recognized, but we're never going to be fully recognized for the lonely parts. And that's where speech and communication, which is part of my role, Specifically, I've leaned into that, Jason, because I happen to work in an industry that is complicated, innately complicated. Making films and television is just innately complex. It's full of jargon. It's full of ambiguity and unique workflows and artists and technologists, which is, you know, left brain and right brain clashing together. Hmm. And in order to express that, especially to an international audience, you've got to work on the way in which you present it through language. And it's that practice that I've done by myself in those private lonely times over and over repetition, watching videos and presentations that I've done. What could I tailor that? How could I do that differently? How can I do that better? Where did I miss that? And then trying to keep track of the questions you're asked, the compliments or criticisms you're given afterward. Be like, what did I do that earned that compliment or criticism? Was the person that gave it to me from the United States? Were they from Germany? Were they from Japan? These are all factors that I try to file away and try to come up with automation and innate cerebral responses to situations so I don't have to think about it, much like a chess player is no longer thinking, they're just doing. Yeah, they're seeing, they're, they're responding to the board. Let's, let's dive into that just for a second. So you mentioned you can tailor your communication to different cultures or maybe different countries. You mind offering like a few examples of that? Like if you're talking to a German crowd or a Japanese crowd or pick a, pick a country or a, a people group, how would you tailor your communication towards that particular language group? Well, first thing is if you can do an assessment of how many people are comfortable with English, Right. Like there's going to be a volume. All right. There's going to be a, a percentage of that. And if you're like, let's say you're in Holland. I go to Holland a lot. A friend of mine, Theo van de Sande, is a Dutch native. And he's basically I was like, I really want to learn some Dutch. He goes, don't waste your time. It's a dying language. There's not enough of us to keep it going. We're <laughs> over it. And I was like, oh, that's so sad. Yeah. And he's like, no, no, no. It's OK. We, we've moved on. And, and we're a prominent European responsible country. And so we're not going to make other people learn Dutch, right? Huh. I think that's a pretty clever forward-thinking um, ideology that's propagated throughout their culture. So they learn English, they learn German, and they know Dutch. And that basically allows them to be, you know, communicative to the entire planet. Yeah. Even though it's a little tiny country. When I go there, I don't have to be as concerned because their English is so exceptional, mm -hmm. right? And so I can tailor that. So what I'll do in strong English speaking cultures that are English as a second language, but strong with it, I will just filter down the jargon. Hmm. I just pull down the jargon and I remove super big words, three and four syllable words. I just try to take them out mm -hmm. and find more descriptive, simpler words. Like you're talking to someone who hasn't had that exposure to the deeper level of vocabulary, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. If you're talking to a group of people that is not as proficient in English, then you've got to slow down the thought process. 
you got to slow the speech down. And, and, and even though I talk really fast, I really try to take it down, make sure there's proper pauses, give them a moment. Uh, that's common in Japan as well, because translating Japanese or Chinese or a lot of Southeast Asian native languages, those languages are written in such a different order that hmm. the word order is not it's not just a translation. It's sort of a, a transformation of, of word order, where in a lot of the European nations, which are part of where English came from, the word order is similar enough or what I call broken German. I can just speak German in the English order. It sounds broken to a German, but they, it makes perfect sense. They, they, can, they can do it. Yeah, They can understand it. Their verbs generally go at the end of the sentence. Our verbs come right up at the beginning. And so that rearrangement is pretty easy for them to do. Where in, in Asian nations, the language changes a lot. And there's a lot of words bunched together that create a thought or something like that. And being aware of those things can really help a speaker who can't learn all the languages of the world, presumably will not, to be able to at least be as effective as possible when you're in those situations. So you mentioned jargon. What I make up is most industries have jargon and most industries are unaware of the jargon they have. I know that the coaching space has jargon and whenever I'm hanging out with people who are not coaches or not indoctrinated in that kind of rhetorical space, they will laugh at me or say, you talk funny and you know, hopefully you have some awareness. Of, oh yeah, there's key phrases that coaches use that you hope gets into the broader vernacular of the zeitgeist. How do you identify jargon? How, how do you know when you're going to speak someplace what's in the frame.io jargon box? Right. Well, when you're talking about Hollywood, there are so many TLAs. There's so many three-letter acronyms because we're describing workflow processes in short form. And so three-letter acronyms become very common mm. and a lot of different companies and industries and businesses and manufacturers that serve the creative community have invented and more or less standardized three-letter acronyms and we can actually speak whole sentences in three-letter acronyms <laughs> right like if i said did you apply the lut or the cdl to the aces whip <laughs> that's a sentence right yeah. and you probably got you got less than 10% of what that is I because that. I, used, that. I used almost as many TLAs as I did words. And in my world, I could talk that and people can stay right on par. But giving a presentation, that's an inappropriate way to work. So how do you get around that? Well, there's these legs of a tripod. You know, the more legs you have, things get more stable. Monopod, bipod, quad, you know, table legs. Yeah. And so I always want to increase stability. It's all about how many people can you capture. And if you can get above 50%, you're doing great. And mm. if you can keep de deepening that 60, 70, 80% connection with that audience, you're going to have a really good response. And there could be some unique opportunities that come out of that. So this last table leg that I really rely on is the keynote presentation, the deck. Mm. One way to think about like, well, what makes a good deck? What makes a bad deck? Certainly design is part of it. We can all think about design, but here's what I think it comes down to. Fundamentally, what makes a great deck, the best presentation that has ever been given has yet to be given. Why? Because the best presentation has no text. Hmm. And no one's been able to really do it. If you want to give a fantastic presentation, you want to be able to let the presentation not require reading. Let me give you an example of the worst presentation. We've all seen it. You have someone on stage, let's presume they're an expert, and they just turn around, you see the back of their head, and they just read yes. the slide. It's like, well, I can read, right? And, and if you're translating languages, it's easier to see it than it is even to hear it. So why are we wasting our time reading? What you want to do, which is what filmmakers do, they're teasing and tickling your audible sounds with your physical, emotional sounds and your visual cues, right? And it's all those going together. That's what makes this three-dimensional experience that really creates an emotional connection. So what you don't want to do is present one-dimensionally with a slide that matches your language. That's, that's 1D. We, well, we don't need both of them. Well, let's slow that down for a second because I think what you're saying is obvious to people here in the industry and maybe even to a lot of our listeners, but a lot of people don't realize the mechanics of putting a, a film together to where you, you you shoot the visuals, but then there's a lot of stuff done in post, not just special effects. There's a lot of editing that goes into post and that editing, correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, but that editing has an emotional agenda. What kind of filters, what kind of cleanup, what kind of things can we do to evoke an emotional response with the images? Then of course you have like the dialogue 
And then there's, and there's obviously a lot of work that goes into that usually beforehand with the writing and all that kind of thing. And the actors have their performance. And then there's sound, there's like edited sounds, there's added sounds, there's birds chirping and all this kind of stuff to also evoke an emotional response. Then you have, of course, like the score and those types of things that are added. And everything is, for lack of a better phrase, and there are better phrases, but just to be kind of controversial for a second. It's all like emotional propaganda. Like it's all designed to have an emotional effect and it's all on purpose and it's all in some ways built at different parts like a conveyor belt. Is that is that an accurate way of describing that? That's a perfect way to describe it. In fact, in, in practical forms, when you hear about all these people that get on these binge watching of like the whole country goes crazy about a particular show, that's when all those are are, are masterfully put Hmm. together in one thing. Look, how people disagree, right? You can't get a family of five to agree on dinner, right? (laughs) But how can you get 200 million people to all say, Queen's Gambit's a great show? Hmm. How do you do that? It's all those little cues because Queen's Gambit on paper, it doesn't sound that interesting to most people. But once you get into it, it's all those little things that are being done and it's that character creation. And when you can actually connect with a character that you are really nothing like, the idea that you have to be like the people on TV is totally goofy. It yeah. doesn't make sense. In yeah. fact, the more different, the more interesting it becomes often. Why do we like reality shows about detectives catching serial killers? Because we're nothing like them, but there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a connection in a weird way with the character of this person, yeah. right? Well, and also a character is a composite. I used to think like when actors and actresses would, when, would thank different people for their award ceremonies, that that was like being modest or those types of things. And now that I'm cl- a little closer to the process, when, when people are thanking people, it's like, well, Daniel Day-Lewis did a great performance, but it is, there's about like 150 people who went into co-creating that performance with him that the audience experienced. Whenever a show turns out even marginally well, that's kind of a Christmas miracle. The, the fact that any show... So, because not not only is it getting two hundred million people to view it and to agree about liking it, I mean, how many people were involved in making it that it could have been messed up at any point along the conveyor belt? I mean, it's 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 crazy how hard it is to make something cohesive. Yeah, and, and Hollywood does it all the time. A friend of mine said when I was back in film school, the hardest thing in the world to do is make a good movie because. <laughs> <laughs> Make a good movie is a lot harder than it sounds. But, you know, it's it's funny how interesting that is. Uh, I, I was fortunate enough to collaborate with the director, David Fincher, on several feature films. I remember one day we got the credits. I think it was The Social Network. And the, the credits, we got the credits in. We're going to take a look at it. And I remember him saying something like, who are all these people, right? Because there's a lot of <laughs> 3,000 names. And sometimes it feels like only 15 people worked on this for the last eight months. You know, that's not literal, but... It's, it's interesting yeah, yeah, yeah. that we do need all this army of people to put anything together, but that's the case for everything. Every industry has that. When you see a truck on the road delivering something on the freeway, how many people are behind what's in that, how it got there, how it came off the boat, where it's going, the inventory, the management, the insurance, all that, even down to the fact that the truck GPS management and, and where it physically is. There is so much inside of this. And I love thinking for a moment, letting my mind race, how many hundreds of thousands or even millions of men and women hours went into just making something that seems trivial actually work? Yeah. Right. Because it's all people. People make everything, even the things that are automatic. It's a person that automated it. Right. And it's that that just (laughs) gets me excited about how much blue collar opportunity there is. Not it's not all about Bezos and Musk. It's not about that. It's all about the people that filter through that system that make a package show up at my door. Right. These are all attributes that fascinate me. And then if you spend enough time focusing on that, you see the gaps that somebody missed. And that's where entrepreneurs capitalize. I'll say this, uh, Michael, one of the things I like about you and the the industries you participated in is they're all behind the scenes industries. They're all they're all the, the mechanisms and the machinery and the people who help make things that are very public. But oftentimes people don't know about them. And so I think you have a unique perspective on the, the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain kind of thing that creates the wonder and the joy that we call cinema or anything, really. So how did you, how did you and your brother start LightIron? So LightIron is a post-production company, which means we're a facility that you get contracted to actually make the films and TV shows for people because people don't own all the infrastructure and talent to do that. A studio generally doesn't make a film. They hire different vendors to make it for them. There's a lot of us, right? 
Um, and so a post-production house is just one of the core video-centric vendors that makes a lot of the machine work. But really, the story about me and my brother's name is Peter. He worked at J.P. Morgan in New York, and he calls me one day. I had started a previous post-house, totally startup. And uh, if if there is um, an attribute that you need to have to do any of this stuff, which is which transcends all markets, it's something that Gladwell talks about. In one of I think it's in Outliers. He talks about positivity bias. Hmm. Entrepreneurs and leaders need to have positivity bias. We must default to the glass half full. We must because we're going to be met with so many no's, so many yellow yellow lights are sometimes as good as you get. You know, it's like all these red lights. <laughs> oh, a couple of yellows. Thank you. Right. And, you know, when you're in traffic, red, 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 yellow. I'll take the yellow, hit the gas because I'm still going. That's right. right? This is yeah. where positivity bias kicks in. When I came to here, I dropped out of college. I'm from Illinois and I came to Los Angeles and I had a flight. My flight was September 11th, 2001. I got the ticket Wow. and yeah. um, didn't get here on that day. But a couple of days later, I was on the plane. Didn't make it to California that morning, but um, got here a few days later and started. I thought I was coming to a community of progressive people. I was taught that Hollywood's progressive. California's progressive. They vote progressive. They think progressive. All the progressive stuff's out there. So I'm like, these are going to be people that are all about what's new and what's going to change everything. And in September of 2001, what was new? Digital. Digital was new. Sounds Pretty trivial today, but it was very, very fresh. And specifically, it was new in post. So like, it was just kind of the dawn of the digital era, like moving from film to digital. That was a new thing. You know, Very like- early. Kodak's, I think, most profitable year was like 2012 or 13. So in 2001, Kodak's still way on top. This is, Kodak hmm. owned the, the high-end cinema community and television. And this idea that digital hmm. cameras could be good enough the same, maybe better than film someday. That was, I thought I was walking into an opportunity that I wouldn't be able to, you know, pick my poison. When in fact I got here and the truth was, we don't want it. We're not buying. Hollywood's not buying. I remember mentors, people that I can't name because they're still alive, but the people that I looked up to that would say, you will never get a reputable filmmaker to use a digital camera. And I believed them. And I was yeah. showing up with my Sony stuff and my Firewire, my Final Cut, and my, you know, Steve Jobs was pushing digital cinema through desktop solutions. And I bought that hook, line, and sinker because it was real. I, I wasn't sold it. I bought it. And I started making it with my friends, my college friends. That's what made us quick school was it was the school's equipment was antiquated. And what we could buy from Apple was fantastic. And it made us feel that we should go to Hollywood and get a piece of this. And the truth is the only way we were able to leverage this new technology was to invent and stand up our own companies ourselves because no one was buying it. So, well, and that's the entrepreneurial thing you were talking about. And even just to pause here. So for our listeners, it's fascinating how every industry becomes an establishment and then you have innovators in that establishment and then you have defenders of the status quo. And even just to make this personal just for a second. So if you're listening to this, what industry are you part of? And what's, what is the establishment? What are the priesthood that says, this is how it has to be done. And frankly, sometimes a a dash of conservatism is fine. You know, like story structure and things like that. We can, we can protect things that work or whatever. And know that anything that you're trying to protect creates an opportunity for innovators to come in and do something new. Is Kodak even around anymore? Uh, Technically, yes. But uh, are they, are they the, the king or queen of the system? Absolutely not. They're a rounding error. Yeah. And that's the reality of what happened. But again, 2011, 2012, not that long ago, that was Kodak's best year. And see, when you're sitting there in 2001, let alone 2010, it seems like an insurmountable mountain to climb to knock those incumbents off. Just too big. Kodak is too big. And I'm too small. I'm too new. I'm under-resourced. I do not have enough contacts. There's no way I can make a dent in this universe. It's too far gone. That's where everybody has the opportunity to identify those gaps, those Swiss cheese holes that you can find a way to squirrel through. Because there's a trick that a a mentor of mine named Leon Silverman always taught me. And he said, when you have two major gargantuan incumbents fighting, it's like King Kong and Godzilla. And when King Kong and Godzilla fight, the winner is badly, brutally busted up too, right? Yeah. You watch yeah. two heavyweights in the boxing ring, the person that win is bleeding bad, yeah. right? They need yeah. days to recover. And so he says the goal is when you can find ways to pit 
Godzilla and King Kong against each other, all you've got to do is not get stepped on. Because when they're healing or dead, that's when you strike. That's when you move. And so what happened in 2008 and nine, as my brother works at JP Morgan, he calls me one day in, in 2008 and he says, I think the market's going to crash. He had no inside knowledge. He just was anticipating through his financial you know, expert knowledge. And he's like, something's not right. So he said, I know you wanted to start a new post house because you were anticipating the next wave of digital technologies. And I was probably talking to him at it at Christmas. You've been in LA for eight years by this point right. or something like that and trying, trying, trying to fiddle things around and try to make, make things happen with your digital little, little, little startup shop. Is that right? That's right. And I, I had, a, I had a, a, an investor, uh, one of the Coppola family, Christopher Coppola, was uh, really gracious to give me a chance at uh, starting up uh, sort of a, a, a side business called Plaster City. And Plaster City was our little startup. And it was all digital cinema, which at that time was extremely abstract and rare and new. And we were just like, you know, uh, inconsequential to the market. But but what was yeah. funny was not that our revenue or the people calling us was was low numbers. It's that every single year we were doubling and doubling and doubling. And I was like, well, doubling minus 500 grand that's not really that interesting <laughs> to, to minus 250 grand. Not that interesting to yeah. most people. But once you yeah. start to get into positive numbers and 250 becomes 500 becomes a million, two, four, eight, then all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, this is taking off because it's on an exponential curve, not a linear curve, right? Is that is that where you were before Pete comes and says, hey, I've got an idea? Or was it before that? We were, as Gladwell outlines, we were pre-tipping point. We were pre-tipping okay. point, yeah. but as you know, if you can visualize the tipping point scale, which is a exponential growth curve, it hits this moment. Mm -hmm. We were totally experiencing the upswing. And hmm. we knew that once it hits the tipping point, if we were gonna be correct on the tipping point, we would need to own 100% of what we were doing. And we wanted to reinvent it because we had the foresight of how it should behave versus carrying a little bit of legacy behind us. So before Pete comes at this point, you experience a tipping point, but Coppola owns all of it, part of it, most of it? He owns part of it. He's he's a partner and it was time for okay. us to go out on our own. I was still, in, I was yep. in my 20s. You know, when you start a business, the only thing you're after is the, is the attraction to the work, not the financial benefits of it. I couldn't have cared less. <laughs> what I was doing motivated me. Money was just... Uh, a result. It was certainly not an objective. Yeah. That's an interesting, and I'm sorry to keep interrupting you, but I just want to make sure their audience is getting the brilliance of this. And in some ways, I've got insider trading because I know you really well. That's another thing about you I really admire, Michael, is you are fanatical. We were we were at an event recently, and I, I was telling, I was introducing you to somebody, and I was telling them about that, and he said, yeah, I've got one gear. And it's like, yeah, yeah, Michael's got one gear. Like he he turns it on. And I, I really admire that about you. Every time I'm around you, I leave with more energy. And I think that's a good point. You don't have to be as as obsessed with money when you're obsessed with making a world-class product. The money will come in a lot of ways. But it also helps to have a brother who works at J.P. Morgan. It does. He's a great advisor. But at the end of the day, I tell this to everybody, money is just dirty paper, right? And you don't want it to be in charge of you because if you do that, you let money make decisions. There are so many people who let money make the decisions for them. Should I do this? Let me look at the bank. Should I go there? Let me look at the bank. That's money making the decisions for you. And I'm not saying to be cavalier with your finances. And someone might say, well, it's easy for you to say. It is easy for me to say, not because there's money in the bank, but because it doesn't matter to me. Yeah. What would you say? What would you say you're motivated by? Passion, change, influence, inspiration, you know? It, this is this is the stuff that that truly breeds equity that you can cash in for way more value than money is worth, right? Because when you get a notification, I, I got a message not a few days ago, someone that said, you spoke to my college 10 years ago and you told me if I do it right, if everything goes the way I'm predicting, we're all going to want to work for Reed Hastings. And he was like, who's Reed Hastings 10 years ago, right? Mm. And now yeah. he's like, I want you to know I work at Netflix. And 10 years ago, you kind of predicted I would in this class. And he reached out and told me that story. There's so much satisfaction. I don't remember what I was doing that day, but I got up. I decided to trudge over to the school and put up a presentation. Had no idea. <laughs> the fact that I can learn 10 years later that it helps someone be successful, you, you, it sounds so, trip, so corny, but you can't put a price on that. That's real. That's real life right there. And that's yeah. more rewarding than whatever 
my paycheck represented that day's worth of work. Who cares? I don't care. I've already spent that money anyway. It's pointless. It's it's the relationship. <laughs> and now I've got a new friend that I didn't know. And now I can learn yeah. more about him. What do you need? What can I do? Where, where are you going? What, what What's you working on? You know, these are the opportunities yeah. that we need to be looking for. How do we cash this stuff in? Because it's so much more valuable, the human interaction. But that journey, the journey that I've been on, when I look back, I'm doing the best work I've done in my life. And I cannot mm-hmm. believe how providential it has been throughout my life. It's all been working towards one thing. And I didn't know it. I didn't even know what I was doing. And I sometimes, I, my, one of my favorite TV shows is the Mythbusters and Adam Savage's host will be in the middle of something and he'll go, what are we doing? Because it's so <laughs> bananas. And I say that all the time. What are we doing? Cause there's no plan. We're just, trying something, we have an opportunity to be sailors. I think sailors hundreds and hundreds of years ago, they were the people that discovered because you had to be brave and um, smart enough that you could actually sail and, and, and not run out of food and not sink and actually discover something that maybe was undiscoverable. Today, the sailors are the sailors of cyberspace. There's so much territory to discover and you can be a sailor of cyberspace and discover something no one's ever discovered before. And that is what can drive. And you need a team to do that. When my brother called me and said, I think the market's going to change. He didn't say, keep your job. He didn't say, hold back, start saving. He said, this is that tipping point is actually going to tip because as the market crashes, it's going to create this waterbed where you have lumps and valleys, right? And all of a sudden, when something turns into a valley, there's going to be a lump rising over here. And we believe that the technological tipping point was going to be to our advantage. So we decided to start a business at the worst time economically you could, but at the best time technologically. It was our dismissiveness of what the economy was telling us not to do and our attraction to what technology and art was telling us to do. And that is what bought and, and, and essentially bred our company Light Iron, which was a post house that sold in less than six years from, from yeah, six years. day one, it started in my, my apartment. We started in my apartment and that's the address. And our, our, our original password for all the company stuff was my address. And for years, <laughs> and the staff knew knew this password, like a master password for some of the company stuff and like the alarm code stuff, you know, things like that. And it was, yeah, it was just our address. I probably shouldn't have said that. Did you require startup capital for that? I mean, did you have a runway? And by the way, you, you I want to push on this a little bit because you said you didn't really have a plan. And I, and I get in some ways that that's true. I, I get that there's not like a master 10, 20 year plan, but I do think people like you who are incredibly strategic, I, I think a lot sometimes like where I say, I don't predict the future. I predict the futures. And I feel like people like you are, have a capacity to see there's 10 different ways this could play out. And then you adapt as you see those different things occur, like a Polaroid picture. So what would you say are the attributes of a person who's jumping into the night? I get it. They don't, they don't have like a, a plan and everyone has a plan until they get hit in the face. I think Muhammad Ali said that. but I think it was Tyson, but yes. Oh, was it Tyson? Yeah. So then what are some of the attributes of a leader who's able to sale in the technological cyberspace landscape? Well, the first thing is fluidity and flexibility. One of the worst attributes of people is their lack of fluidity in situations, right? And so those are people that are like strong planners. We're all related to a very strong planner. You're going on a trip. We're going to stop here for gas. We're going to stop here for this. We're going to pack this and we're going to arrive at this hotel. And as soon as something goes wrong, what happens to that person? They start to lose lose it, it, right? And they're like, oh my gosh. And they freak out, right? That's a lack of fluidity. And if that can't get you through a vacation, imagine trying to start a business, right? It's, it's the <laughs> fact that you have to relinquish control and power and realize I have no power in this. All I have is instinct and I need to be fluid and flexible when those things inevitably change. The second thing is being comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? We have to really actually covet the uncomfortable feeling. You know, if you, if you think of like a jungle, and then the, the trees stop, the tree line stops. And there's like, you've probably seen this, then there's this great hotel right on the tree line of a jungle. And you can go on the safari and tomorrow you can go on the zip line. You can do all these cool trails. But as soon as you're done, you want to get out of the jungle and you want to go into the spa and the hammocks, right? <laughs> you've seen it. They take yeah. pictures from the sky. It makes you want to go there, right? Well, yeah. 
some people like to live in the jungle and the jungle wants to kill you. There's a thousand ways the jungle is trying to kill you, but people live in it and the people that live in it thrive. And most people go in the jungle. They can only survive if they go back to the resort at the end of the day. When when people actually know how to thrive in the jungle and they respect it in such a way that they can literally control the jungle. Right. And they yeah. they're not they're not looking for the resort to survive. They're able to live in it entrepreneurs and leaders, you all have a jungle. Your jungle is that world that you work and play in. And you can be like, I'm comfortable in the jungle. And people that are not comfortable in the jungle and want the resort, those are not the people that are going to be as successful building businesses in blue sky opportunities. Well, and it is an interesting question. You know, are you a jungle explorer or a resort builder? And, and not that there's necessarily, we can moralize that and judge one over the other, which would be fine. But also I think it's interesting to ask a person, no matter where you are, what is your chosen jungle? You know, I, I think about my clients and sometimes my clients are coming to me because they've built the resort and now they want to explore the jungle. Sometimes they're in the middle of the jungle and they're looking for uh, someone to help them through the jungle. Uh, you know, sometimes people are in the jungle and they're looking for a better jungle to be in. They don't like the one that they're in in terms of the adventure, the risk. And so it is an interesting conversation around, you know, are you getting, really what we're saying is, are you getting too comfortable? And are you willing to make yourself uncomfortable to develop that, that aptitude for being as you said, comfortable being uncomfortable. Well, and it's it's a lonely journey. This isn't something very sexy because when you're selling this to people, it sounds good at first. Um, but honestly, it's really difficult. There is um, a theory. It's kind of a fun story. And there was an explorer named Shackleton. This is over 100 years ago in, um, in Britain. And Shackleton is putting together the first expedition from Britain down to the Antarctic. If you want to learn about this, it's hysterical because you just Google Shackleton greatest want ad. And what he did is he put into the papers a want ad that basically said, it's going to be bitter cold. It's going to be terrible conditions and survival is unlikely. That was his want ad. So what happens? He's attracting people who have nothing to lose. He is attracting the only people that are absolutely up for that challenge because they're willing For whatever has happened in their life, I imagine these people had some really sad stories in their life. And what happens? They end up getting to the ice. The ice, they don't understand how it works and they don't realize their boat gets trapped in the ice. And when they wake up the next morning, there's a mile of ice behind them. And they're like, oh, this is Mm. this. We have to wait till spring. And as the spring approaches, the ice is changing. It's destroying the boat. So the boat that they're going to take home isn't going home. And they have to figure this out. Mm. Long story short, because of that fantastic want ad, which is the most honestly written job description ever written by any boss ever, when it hit the fan, nobody died. They all made it back. Nobody ate each other. Nobody killed each other. Nobody did any of those things. Because if you hired the wrong people by overselling the job and get the wrong people, they wouldn't have made it the first week. But he got the right yeah. people and they survived. And a year and a half later, they show up in the harbor and everyone's like, oh my gosh, they're all here. What a remarkable story, not of explorers, but of leadership and of honesty and being transparent with the people that I'm leading you in a place that's going to be lonely and hard. When we started Light Iron, we had seven people with us and we got we did get some investments, some seed rounds to get us going. And it was through raising mm-hmm. a, a seed round with one investor and then putting this stuff and growing it organically with people that were not hired guns. These were invested people. I was honest. Yeah. We were honest with each other. This is going to suck. This might not pay off. We're probably going to go out of business. We are going to get the worst clients. Nobody's going to like us, right? And when you get people raising your hand saying, that's what I want, you know you're into something. And when it started to tip, when the scale started to tip and we started to really capitalize on that, the expansion of Light Iron, within two years, we were in New York. Within three years, we were on, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean and and doing the social network and, and Gone Girl and Dragon Tattoo and, and, and Underworld and Total Recall and Spider-Man. I mean, I spent um, two months working on Spider-Man on a company that probably had 12 employees and we were like, we had no idea what we were doing. What are we doing? We have no idea what we're doing, but we understood an opportunity technologically and creatively that no one else understood because this was the, we were sailors of cyberspace and we were applying totally new principles and new technology to incumbents 
And because the tipping point timing was predicted right, it actually worked out in our favor and our company exploded. Yeah. Well, and, there, and again, there's so many good things here. And this is one of the reasons why I love, like being around you and why I want people listening to this to be around you. There's a sense of adventure that goes with that. And our company, we have all these coaches. And as we're scaling, we're adding coaches all the time and people are joining. You know, oftentimes coaches come to us and they say, Hey, I want to join the firm so that it'll make things easier. You know, like, hey, hey, do I have can you give me a salary? Can you and none of our coaches get salaries? Everyone's to use a violent metaphor, you eat what you kill kind of a thing. We all, we hunt together and we serve together, but there's no guarantee of income. It's it's all it's a very entrepreneurial model. And recently I was having a conversation with one of our executives and we were talking about, hey, like we're not looking for people who want to join our community so that it'll be easier. We want people who want to join our community so that they can become stronger. And it, and there's a there's a different modality there. Like people were attracted to going on that seafaring trip to the Arctic, not because it was going to be easy, but because it was going to make them strong. And there's a developmental aspect of that. And I feel like you not only embody that, but you capture that oftentimes. And we might as well go here too, because we're jumping around. This is going to be very memento. You know, you're at, you're the, the, I'm going to make sure I said this right. The global senior vice president of innovation at uh, frame.io. And how many, how many employees right now are joining the company like per week or per month? Yeah, Frame.io is like, exploit. I mean, we hire 10 people a week, probably. When I joined, it was probably 80 people, something like that. Now it's over 300. And of course, we were acquired by Adobe about a month ago. And so this yeah. is all about, and the CEO and co-founder, Emery Wells and John Traver, really are true sailors of cyberspace, too. They saw an opportunity. And you'd say, okay, I'm going to put some quick time in movies on the internet and hit play. Don't we already do that? And that's where the entrepreneur says, actually, not exactly this way that this community is you, you know, missing. When you think about what is Frame.io, Frame.io is a cloud-based collaboration program. It's like YouTube for professional filmmakers. But YouTube is not for pros. It's for YouTubers, right? And Vimeo yeah, is for yeah. Vimeo. And Instagram's for Instagram. Remember, prior to TikTok, if you would have said there's a whole new way to compete with YouTube, you would have said, no way. Absolutely. And TikTok will completely eclipse and destroy Facebook, right? Yeah, It'll become yeah. far more prevalent in this society than Facebook. But even three years ago, nobody could see that there was a new wedge to get in. And once you go into a wedge, you can open that wedge up and create a new market. Yeah, well, and to be clear, so Frame.io, I want to make sure I'm saying it right. So it's Frame.io, not Frame.io, which is what I've been calling it for years. Yeah, you don't have to pronounce the dot after uh, Frame or after... Uh, <laughs> okay, Frame.io. There's not a single project, like storytelling project I've been on where we haven't used Frame.io. So we've been using that for years and our podcast is edited on Frame.io. And just so our audience knows, and this is kind of a shameless advertisement or plug or whatever, you know, Vimeo and YouTube are very monocommunicative. And the closest you get to to interaction is comments. And a lot of times you can shut those off because we're in a season where you can't say anything without half of the country hating you. So Frame.io is really fascinating because you get you can get deep collaboration and you can have a variety of people get their opinions simultaneously. And, and in our sometimes when the microphone's not rolling, uh, Michael tell you how our coaching firm is using Frame.io to train coaches. It's actually really fascinating how we're playing with your technology over at our institute. It's really, really interesting. And it is, it's, it's, it's amazing how making video collaborative is something that Vimeo and YouTube just aren't, or TikTok or Instagram or anyone just isn't doing. Right. And if you think about it, when you think about how the internet is interfaced with, it's generally the caboose of the train. It's the end of the line. You're seeing the final result. Well, someone has to manufacture yep. everything to get to the final result. And Frame.io is the ubiquitous, creatively empowering tool that allows you to do all the work in progress. There's a three-letter acronym, WIP, that I mentioned earlier, right? The work in progress component has all those 3,000 names of people that have to collaborate. None of those people are going to do that on YouTube because that's the last step. What about steps one through yeah. 999? That's Frame.io. Yeah. And because we've sort of captured this market and understand it very well, because Emery and John worked at a post-production company, Emery's kind of pseudo-famous because his post house did all the SNL digital shorts. And so we've all, oh, seen, wow. we've all seen those uh, digital shorts and, you know, yeah. um, and what happened was out of that agency type of post-production finishing house, he says, you know what, we're missing a technology and we could try yeah. YouTube, we could try Vimeo, but it's missing all these things. What about inventing yeah. it. And as he invented it, he realized one day when he woke up, that's the business, not this post house. And he closed the post house and started pushing everything to frame. And I, I, I and it's, it's born out of 
necessity, right? And this is the great entrepreneurial spirit. He'd already been an entrepreneur, very successful. Him and I known each other probably since 2007. And he was a colleague, a sort of a, a, a competitor, but we sometimes call it cooperation, yeah. right? And so um, we, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you, co- you collaborate and cooperate with competitors sometimes. And I was in LA, he was in New York, and then I moved to New York. And then he, 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 I sold um, Light Iron to Panavision, which everyone's sort of seen the Steven Spielberg with the big Panavision film cameras. Uh, Panavision's almost a 70-year-old company, a dynasty, one of America's few dynasty companies, right? Panavision wanted to diversify its business, and it looked at the tipping point that Lightiron created with digital cinema technologies, mobile technologies, web-based technologies, and they said, that's what we need. So they acquired Lightiron, and when that acquisition happened, I started focusing on acquisition, cameras and lenses and optics. And I opened up a whole new world. Again, Adam Savage on Mythbusters, what am I doing? I'm like, well, if I'm at Panavision and Panavision is an optics and camera company, well, why don't I learn that trade? Why don't I explore that tunnel, right? Well, and it's not just learning about, I mean, I think that's that's what I want part of what uh, people listening to hear. You, You don't just learn about things. You ask, what's the bleeding edge of this thing? So it's not like it's not like you're asking, how can I understand how cameras work? I mean, how many cameras have you invented? I mean, are there patents? Knowing you for a long time, I'm always seeing you like show, like when I would come over to the studio or the office, like your, your mad scientist lab, there'd be like all these cameras that like people are begging to use that, that don't really exist yet. I, I am a soldier among soldiers. I've been fortunate to collaborate with so many smart people. I find myself at the beginning and bleeding edge of a lot of camera and post-production technology. It's kind of remarkable. I don't know how these stories came about, but if you like to live in the jungle, you'll discover things. If you like to live in the outside the jungle, there's a lot less to discover because it's all groomed. It's all trimmed. It's all supposed to be there. I like wandering around. And when you wander around, you find other people wandering around, right? And it's in that process of discovery that you discover that plant is poisonous and that one's tasty, right? And you go through those processes. Of course, they're never going to give you the choice back at the resort, in the jungle, it's trial and error, and, and you'll find other people like yeah. you, which is why I'm a soldier among soldiers. I'm working with other people like me who like to live in the jungle, who like to be – they're comfortable with being uncomfortable. I can't do this alone, Jason. I, I would I'd be upside down and backwards in five minutes without a good team. But when you find the Shackleton approach of being able to recruit the right people who are willing to bleed for you, now you get them in the jungle, you start exploring, you start tasting things and see who gets sick. You're applying that knowledge going forwards. And then all of a sudden you find yourself with resources and you're actually inventing something real and you didn't plan it. And once you start to get hungry for it, it's all you think, eat, dream, sleep about. It's all, it's all you want to do is bring this to the world to help democratize it, right? You've gotten some crap for that, by the way. Like, I, I did want to ask you about that in terms of there's been a lot of, for lack of a better phrase, negative press about some of the innovations that you're pioneering and your, you and your team. And my guess is there's even some negative press about Frame.io and as useful and helpful as it is and some of the, I imagine some of the AI stuff you guys are working on and what that will do to the industry. Can you talk a little bit about some of the uh, feelings that people might have about your work as you innovate and and how you deal with that? Yeah, you know, Steve Jobs uh, was giving a presentation long time ago and someone in the audience got the mic and asked a really direct question. It was really like bad. And Steve, his, his summer, he takes a moment and he pauses and he says, you can only satisfy some of the people some of the time. And what I love about that, and then he goes on and sort of tries to reach a knowledge branch out to this guy. But what he's basically saying is we can't get it all right. Even Apple, even Steve Jobs, who we all know who he is and what they did, they can't get it right. That's his way of saying even we don't get it right and it's not right for everybody. Jim Gennard is another entrepreneur. He started Oakley. His idea was sunglasses in the 70s were not cool. Sports people didn't wear them. They were more functional. They weren't as cool. And he said, what about sports sunglasses? And he invented this. His dog was named Oakley, called the company Oakley. And he goes from selling Oakleys out of the back of a car in Santa Monica to becoming, I think he sold the company for over $4 billion to Ray-Ban. And in that process, uh, he started the Red Camera Company. And the Red Camera Company was because he didn't like where some of the Japanese camera manufacturers were going with videotape. He said, videotape is not the future of 
of cinema and cameras. And he wanted to move to files, hmm. which obviously today sounds pretty obvious. But in 2000 through 2007, it was a videotape world. Right. And he hmm. challenged yeah. that. And Jim was a great mentor of mine teaching me what entrepreneurialisms and, and what uh, visionaries had to endure because he took so much flack for his approach. About four years ago, he announced a phone called the Hydrogen, and he wanted to build a phone to compete with Apple, compete with everyone, say, I can build a phone better than everyone else and make it about the camera. And I bought a Hydrogen. Mm -hmm. I actually loved it. It was wonderful. It's the coolest thing. It was a great conversation starter. Uh -huh. It didn't really take off. And people say, well, Jim Gennard failed, right? And Apple's made things like the Cube and the Cube failed, right? Or Lisa failed, yeah. right? Or Final yeah. Cut failed or- iPhone for Amazon. Right, those right, that's right. Those phones, the Amazon phones failed, right? And what you actually have the ability to do as an entrepreneur is say, no, 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 we fail up, right? Because a failure yeah. is, is really, a true failure is to continually- make the same mistakes and, and not really gain any traction and any uh, education from those mistakes. And then you really don't know why you failed, because if you can't really assess the situation, you're bound to make that same mistake again. Well, and keep going with Jim's Jim, story. Well, cause, cause Jim, our audience probably don't know, but, but so Jim invented this camera called the red. Yeah. And the red camera, it, it became basically the most popular worldwide global digital cinema camera. It became the, the you know, last year at the Oscars, the movie that won was Mank uh, for best cinematography. And that shot on a black and white red digital camera. And, and it's won the best cinematography award. And, and it also inspired other companies that aren't red to build their own versions of red. And he took a company like, think of Sony, a company like Sony, which was all on a tape based infrastructure. He changed their entire roadmap. One guy by making wow. one camera took all of Sony and his company was barely a hundred people in um, Irvine, California, he, he barely a hundred people. He, his cameras were barely coming out. They were barely working, but the idea behind them and when they functioned and how it was, where you could see where the puck was going to be, all of Sony pivoted the whole thing and videotape disappears. Yeah. And a, a videotape today sounds archaic. An entrepreneur failed with his phone, but the technology that was in the camera on the phone became the industry standard over time. Well, ultimately, what happened with the red camera is we partnered with them at Panavision. And Panavision, this dynasty with all this film history <laughs> and the Spielberg with the Jaws and the camera over the bow of the ship and all that stuff, Panavision bet on red. And we invented a camera together yep. called the DXL. And this was the camera that I was the product director of. And we made a camera with red. And we, and we built a Panavision digital camera called DXL. And it was the Panavision version. And it's like that all came from this little startup company that had this crazy idea that they could compete with Sony. Yes. And that's the entrepreneurial spirit. It also comes down to one of the things that I would say, I don't want to be too ethnocentric here to use a big word, but one of the things that I think is really unique about Americans and an advantage that we have, and, and other people can take this advantage because once you have the information, you can apply it to wherever you are. But one of the advantages that Americans have, and I'll give you an example. If you're an American and you've been on this planet for several decades, this will resonate with you. Yeah. The way in which we've been dealing with electronics up until very recently has a certain type of menu, VCRs, DVDs, microwaves, and we hate it. You yeah. hate the menu systems. But that, I posit, is an American thought process because the engineers who develop that stuff overseas, they don't hate those menus. Yep. It makes yep. sense to them, which is why they designed it that way. So factor into your thought process, what if the menu systems that we hate, that is someone else, it's totally logical to them, it's a cultural thing, is why certain things are designed the way they are. Well, one of the advantages right now, you can challenge me on this, but the best software in the world is coming out of America. We're building the best software. We were not building yes. electronics. We certainly weren't building the best cars. There was a lot of cultures that could do things. We weren't making good TVs. Like the American TV companies, they were getting beat by Japan and Korea, right? The American car companies were getting beat by the Germans, right? Yeah. You know, the Italians still make the best cars in the world, in my opinion. But when it comes to software design and specifically menus, if you have a car that you had a phone that you could plug in, when you looked at the car manufacturer's menu system, it was so bad 
that we had to invent CarPlay so you can actually put your Apple phone on the thing. You're like, why didn't they just build this the first time? Because Americans think about design and specifically navigating differently. And why did Apple get so popular? I think it's because of the operating system is an American operating system and it works. We like this idea of docs and we like this idea and red actually built a camera similar to Mac OS where there's a dock at the bottom and there's buttons like that. And you're operating the camera. It feels like an Apple computer. And that starts to trigger things that is different than this menu scrolling page after page after page, which is how all the incumbent cameras were done. So it's not just about sensors, Jason. It's also about the interface and the interaction, the tactile elements of new inventions. You got to think about the the actual society that's going to come in contact with it, skeuomorphism attributes and things like that are all what tickle the mind in feeling like, what is this interaction going to look like? You know, those are all attributes that go into the stuff I'm thinking about, tactile, tactile nature of these things and the software design things, all that matters. Well, and it does. And it's interesting, again, going back to the emotions of film, like this is, and you're a very engaging emotional speaker. This is all, for lack of a better phrase, emotional and or aesthetic. And I think that's that's what's fun about innovation is it's not just how can you make something functional that does something that people either say can't be done or has never been done before, but then how can you how can you make this beautiful to where people are longing to use it, where using it is a delightful experience. And again, for people who are listening, like, I'll talk to coaches specifically. Like I want my clients, and you know, we have, I think we, right now we have 200 and some clients in 12 countries. Like I want our clients to be delighted. And we actually had a form that our clients fill out after every session called the thrill form because we want to get feedback of whether they're thrilled. Now, some people are committed to not being thrilled no matter what you do. And that's an interesting conversation to break open for people because it changes their lives once they're open to being thrilled. But it is an interesting thing to say, okay, how can you make this camera not just better from a resolution standpoint and, and how many Ks it's going to have and those types of things, but how can you make this a darling to work with, which I'm imagining too, Michael, like increases usage time. It cuts down. You can move faster with the camera. You can get stuff done faster, which of course cuts down production costs and things like that. It is it, the, the intersection of functionality and beauty, which I think probably is what Steve Jobs is also obsessed with. You remind me of him in that regard because you are obsessed about both of those things. Yeah, you know, um, Steve Jobs had a phrase once. He says, the back of ours looks better than the front of theirs. And <laughs> uh, and then, and it not only is it true, but it's a really good element. Like, how do you get your staff to, how do you articulate things that you want your team to be on the same page? Because one of the hardest things to do is when you believe something really badly and someone doesn't care very much, you feel so defeated and, and stuck because you're like, how am I going to convey this? Well, that particular phrase, the back of ours looks better than the front of theirs. Everybody can get on the same page with what he means by that. And he right understands here. he's yeah. resetting a bar and he's saying, this is the bar that we're setting. And you're like, wow. It also says the back of something matters, right? Like the stuff that, you know, it's all this stuff that people would say, does it really matter? Does the box really matter? Emery put together a bunch of um, core values at Frame One of these core values is perforate the sticker. What does that mean? Perforating the sticker is the difference between you, when you go to Best Buy and you buy, let's say, a I don't know, whatever you buy at Best Buy in a package off a shelf, you need, you need a hand grenade to get that package opened, right? You need no a kidding. chainsaw, yeah. you got to put gloves on, you got to get chain mail to not get cuts on yourself just to get this thing open, <laughs> right? Yes. When you go to Apple, They've already perforated the sticker. They even want the destruction of the box to go well. That's yeah. how far they're taking it. That the actual cardboard in your hands has a softness to it, right? And you don't yeah. need a knife. You don't need a chainsaw. You don't need to worry about cutting yourself to get this thing open because you're so excited about opening the thing that you bought, that you waited in line for, wanted. You want that. Even that experience matters, right? To be delightful, yeah. Everybody can set that standard, but only a few companies are willing to do that. And if you think it doesn't matter, you'd be wrong. In Hollywood, we have companies that rent trucks, okay? And there's different companies that rent trucks. I'm not going to name the, the brands, but there are different companies that rent trucks. And you rent them to put lighting gear and camera gear and art department gear, all this stuff in there. Some of the companies wash the trucks every single night. They grease the tires and they wipe the dash down and the outside of the truck is sparkling. And other companies, they go as long as they possibly can 
before someone writes wash me in a finger and draws a draws <laughs> something gross on the back that's one of the yeah. differences that's perforating the sticker right it's it's yeah. it's realizing that cerebrally we can see the care that goes into that little moment there's probably care everywhere else that i can't see right you're not you're not hoodwinking someone with a wash car you're realizing if somebody's got the infrastructure to wash cars every single night they've got their act together yeah well it's the uh I, i'm gonna mess up the band whether it's led zeppelin or pink floyd or whoever or rolling stone where they they put the green m&ms or whatever in the contract because they're doing pyrotechnics and things on stage and if the if the people who are running the event can't read the contract detailed enough to put green m&ms or whatever they're asking for in the bowls in their green room they they can't trust them to blow things up around them when they're performing highway to hell or whatever it was that they're they're playing and it is there i've never thought about that before michael that's brilliant like there are certain kind of key symbolic excellences that communicate excellence throughout the organization and what does it look like to fight for that by the way just to hear your response to this i feel like most people or companies sometimes drift away from that because it becomes in their minds it becomes like the cfos who are listening to this are hearing cost benefit ratio it costs more money to do that and if we're trying to cut costs and increase profits the pursuit of excellence sometimes is seen as uh, an inhibitor from that like what would your response be to that well, we all, all we all understand the value affiliated with certain brands. We know, we expect to pay more for a Ferrari than we do a uh, a Civic, right? And so, if, yeah. if 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 you're thinking about, well, how do I maximize ROI? I can't afford to wash the cars every single night, but you can if you charge more for the car. Well, what's going to make people charge more for the car? All those attributes, perfing the sticker, that contribute to the entire experience being better. That's premium. I expect to pay that. I actually want to pay that. Elon Musk says it's easy to build a Tesla. It's much harder to build the tools to build a Tesla, right? Mm. The tooling costs, which is what those CFOs are thinking about probably, is like, well, I got to put yeah. all this stuff together. You can charge more if you can elevate your brand building those tooling costs because the customer, if they can sense it at the end of the day, they will do that. And every industry can prove this out. Hotels, what the quality of lobby is, dictates the cost of the room. And you can do that, right? The a restaurant, the quality of the bathroom is going to dictate the quality of the food. There's going to be a correlation between those things, right? And so you want to yes. charge more for food, you can start with the bathroom and the hostess, right? And if you want to charge more yeah. for a room, you start with the lobby and the parking lot. You know, when was the last time you paved it? When was the last time you colored the lines? All those little things, painting lines in a parking lot is actually a rounding error at the end of the year. But if the first thing I experience when I pull up to a hotel is brand new pavement with bright yellow lines, I'm already thinking good things about this place, right? I'm already willing right. to pay a little bit more. Yeah. So we're, we're actually out of time. And this is one of the reasons why when you and I would hang out for breakfast, we'd have to go like put more money in the meter like three or four times before. And the waitress and the waiters were, were a little frustrated that we wouldn't leave. Um, so I have one last question. And this is a, when we were hanging out a few days ago, you told me this story. And I was like, man, I really want more people to hear this story. Frame.io is obviously growing rapidly, sold to Adobe for $1.275 billion. Very exciting. Congratulations. You're onboarding 10 people every week. And you told me, and I'd love for you to tell other people what you tell the folks when you're onboarding them, because you get to be kind of like John Hammond, watching people be born onto the island of Frame.io who are coming through the pipeline there as, as you're being onboarded. Can you tell our audience a little bit about what you tell them as a way of setting the culture for their contribution in Frame.io for as long as they're there? So thank you for the congratulations. I, I appreciate that. You know, everyone wants to hire the right person and every person that gets hired wants to be as big of an impact as possible. And what I love about entrepreneurs and entrepreneur companies is that if you join at the right time, Frame.io is an example of a company that is small enough that you can make a difference, but it's big enough that it has a whole world of customers and people that we can truly influence. When you have all huge companies, it's hard sometimes to stand out. So you have to work harder to stand out. And small businesses have the benefit of standing out. But the downside to being a small business is your impact in the market is small. And so it's this really interesting balancing act. And one of the things that's that's cool about what we're doing is we're we are this wonderful tightrope walking entity where we have a lot of customers that are powerful, creative people who really believe in the product. You being one of them makes me feel so great. Thank you for that. But at the same time, we are small enough that we can make a difference, right? Leon Silverman, I mentioned him. He had a great 
quote. These are Leon is a wonderful mentor. He worked at Disney for years. He was an entrepreneur, started a company in the late 70s, uh, sold it, just a post-production mogul, wonderful man. Hmm. And he said, big enough to serve you, small enough to know you. And that's, mm. in a way, that's so much of America, right? That's so much of the small business success. You want to be big enough to serve people, but small enough to know them, you know? And that's not something that went away in the late 1950s. We can still do that today. We just got to do it through different envelopes. It's different vehicles, but we can still do that. Yeah, yeah maybe it's not the grocery store. I'm going to put the bag in you and the manager's there. It's it, That's what it looks like, you know, in, 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 in 1950s. But- yeah. We can do the same thing. And this is an opportunity. We just have to recalibrate how you do that. How do you make a cyber world personal? You can do it. There's ways to do it. But how do you make a cyber world impactful? We can do that too. If we leave one without the other, and I'll do my best to keep things in check because I know the value of both sides of this coin. If you can do them both and play that line and give even a big company can feel like they know you that's going to attract people to your business and your brand's going to be able to flourish because of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Michael. There's so many things left untouched. There's the process of sell. What is it like to get absorbed by a larger organization? How do you manage cultures? There's the disciplines of innovation thought. How do you do pipeline for Dallas? There's so many things that I want to talk to you. So if it's possible, I'd love to have you come back again. But in the meantime, this is this is a taster. This is a teaser of the one and only Michael Cioni. And I just want to thank you for giving us your time. Thanks, Jason. Great to be here. Thank you for listening. For more resources like this, as well as articles and videos by all of our coaches, go to novus.global and click on resources. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe. That helps us out a lot. Rate and leave a review. If you didn't like us, just leave us alone. We drop new episodes every week and we don't want you to miss out. If you want to explore hiring a Novus Global Coach or becoming an executive coach at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching, email us at begin at novus.global or click the link in the show notes. Thank you again for listening. And remember, dare to go beyond high performance.